listening to B2B Tech Talk with Ingram Micro, the place to learn about new technology and technological advances before they become mainstream. This podcast is sponsored by Ingram Micro's Imagine Next. It's not about the destination. It's about going someplace you never thought possible. Go to imaginenext.ingrammicro.com to find out more. Let's get into it. Welcome to B2B Tech Talk with Ingram Micro. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and our guests today are Ed Suhu of Lenovo and Jared Carl of NVIDIA. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Shelby. Nice to be here. Thanks, Shelby. Appreciate you having me on. Well, so we are talking today about the Power of Two campaign with Lenovo and NVIDIA. So, Jared, why have NVIDIA and Lenovo really teamed up on this campaign to talk about the power of AI? That is a great question, Shelby. People know NVIDIA from our background in computer graphics. We make pretty images, right? Well, what we've done in the last 10 years is we found out that that power of making pretty images, the power of accelerating graphics and bringing that out to the mainstream is very applicable to HPC workloads. But HPC workloads, we need to democratize those out, become AI workloads. As we continue down the path of AI, which is training a computer to think like a human, to recognize objects, and to make guided decisions for us, that power is only possible with NVIDIA technology as of today. GPUs accelerate that. But we can't do that alone. We need partners such as Lenovo. We need an OEM with the strength of Lenovo to be able to deliver that message out to us and actually help these customers on their AI journey. Just like virtualization was 20 years ago, you relied on the virtualization companies. The cloud story from 10 years ago, you had to have the cloud providers there to help you figure out how to get on that journey. With the AI providers today, as we get on the democratization of compute, you need the brain power of Lenovo and the ability to deliver an enterprise class system supportable anywhere in the globe with world-class computing resources and the support necessary behind it to make it run. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the power of computing, it, it's, uh, that's everything. I mean, that's what, uh, what is driving a lot of this. So, But I thought it was interesting, Ed, on uh, our pre-interview call, mm-hmm. we talked about discussing technology not in the, uh, the very technical terms of, of the capabilities and the tools, but, you know, in, in real words and real instances. And so that's, I think, what's fascinating about, uh, about this campaign. So how do you think about AI? You know, uh, Shelby, thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. What's fascinating is I don't think about AI. I think AI should be almost behind the curtain, just mm-hmm. making things happen to anticipate uh, what I'm looking for or thinking about or should act on. And AI should be so transparent that I never really have to think about it. And I think that's the power of two, where we make through the technologies of our you know, infrastructure and our integration with NVIDIA, it is seamless and transparent and more importantly, power. That power of imagination, that power of insight. To me, AI is all of that. So when we look at these elements of AI, there's a lot that goes into it. So talk to me about the, I guess, analogies for how you see the elements of AI and what what's needed to perform at its best. Yeah. So I think AI is kind of like a big Rubik's cube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you're twisting and trying to match things. 
uh, very, very quickly. And there's a methodology to it. What is it? How do you break the code? The other analogy is almost like cracking a safe or a vault. What is the combination? What do you listen for? What do you feel for as you turn the dials on the combination to unlock secrets, value, insights? And to me, AI is all about unlocking and really finding the methodology to really help address the business issues. Right, right. We maybe got off on a, a tangent a little bit, but uh, you mentioned that you actually see a lot of this in terms of movies. I do. I love movies. And, and movies actually, you know, art imitates life and life imitates art. In the context of AI, the movie that stood out to me that kind of represented AI at its its uh, kind of like essence is the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray and Andy mm-hmm. McDowell. And what I loved about the premise of the movie was, how do you get better every day? How do you learn the lessons as you iterate? You know, the funny scene that I thought was when he was talking to Andy McDowell and he asked her about her uh, background and she said, I had a, uh, she has a degree in French literature and he scoffed at it. Oops. He learned really quickly the next day when the alarm clock went off at 6 a.m. and Sonny and Cher song came on and said, I got you, babe. Hmm. He actually started to take French lessons. And so that's AI iterating on the fly, learning what would be the right way to answer in the next set of contextual, let's say, opportunities. And the Groundhog Day uh, you know, story is about lessons learned, iterating, learning, with the ultimate goal of having and building a relationship. And in this context, for a lot of our business listeners, it is your relationship with your customers and your employees. You know, as uh, as you're mentioning that, it kind of occurs to me that isn't life a big AI set? Because aren't we trying to learn and adapt and take new information in and and be able to improve the next day. We don't get that that redo like we do in, in Groundhog Day. But uh, do you, you see what I'm saying? I do. I, and I love that part, right? You know, to me, AI is like a big, wild, hairy ride. It's like a <laughs> roller coaster, right? You just get your arms up above your head and just saying, come on, let's go. To me, AI should be something that of an adventure, something that you're going to learn every time. And the technologies behind all of that to make it magical, powerful, and relevant is this is why the power of two is so critical. What about data sets? The information that comes out is only as good as the information that goes in. So, you know, what what are these data sets? Uh, I guess, how would you think of those? And what can you, I guess, explain to us in real words? Yeah, so I'll use an analogy. To me, you know, the, the goal uh, of a lot of artists, uh, the biggest conundrum they have is a blank canvas. But what mm-hmm. they have is a palette of colors, what they have is different mediums from oil to chalk to, to crayons and the like. How do they paint the data? Where did, what kinds of data do I get, uh, let's say, access to? The data that I own, the data that I get from my partners, and the data that I get from third parties. How do I pull all of those data streams together and create something powerful, relevant, serendipitous, and discovery in new types of, um, let's say, reactions coming from my workforce or from my customers, where I would never have thought had I just used a single set of data. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Data value is in the eye of the beholder as well. 
so when when you look at Jared, when you hear you know Ed describe data, data sets, and and uh, AI in these terms, I, I guess what do you think of those, and and are there any that you would add to those? It's it's a very interesting context when we look at data, and especially as we apply it back to AI. You know, Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable for magic. AI is not magic. It's just advanced technology. It mm-hmm. is advanced technology that has leveraged years and years of data that's flown into a system. And if we look at customers nowadays, when we look at the businesses adopting these technologies, every single technological input into the computing world has come from streaming from data. How do we deal with the data? How do we solve the data problems faster? Now, the problem is we have way too much data that's coming in and out. We generate, on average, like 10 petabytes of data a day, probably 15 if my teenage daughter went to Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> right. We'll see where that flows in, right? But it's what you, what data you have, what you've learned from your data, how, much inference, how many models you can throw at the data to learn what it means, but then what do you do with the data? And that's really the clickover point there of making AI real. Um, when we look at simple AI program, and I put simple in air quotes here, right? Sure. Because AI is complex, but it doesn't have to be. Chatbots. What is somebody meaning to ask a computer? These are everywhere. NLP, natural language processing, where you can scan a document page and it gives you a summation of what those are. Those are fairly straightforward because they're constrained environments. But when we look at the more complex AIs, a self-driving car, you're dealing with really fast streams at 60 frames a second of video image, of radar data, of car data, right? Your cars already collect so many hundred points of data every given second to make sure that it's running well. And then you have to control the car in something that's very natural to humans, right? And I was driving this morning and a squirrel ran out in front of me and I immediately knew it hit the brake, right? The yeah. amount of programming that goes into just do that is immense but it's dealing with the data and doing that together with somebody to understand at what points during the logical flow of data. You know, when we talk about the data story here, we have two sides of the conversation. One is the data scientists that are actually manipulating the data. One is the infrastructure team that's actually building the infrastructure and supporting it to go with it. And I said, there's two, there's actually a third one. And the third one really is the business units, right? The business users, the people that understand, well, what do I want out of this experience to understand what's going on? So the data scientists look at the data flow. The infrastructure teams really look at the physical connectivity of it. Are you in a well-connected network? Are you in a disconnected network? Self-driving car example, for example, you could be in the middle of a desert. There's absolutely no connectivity out there. It has to be fully self-sufficient. Right, You don't want to encounter anything that's going to mess it up. But then, of course, there's the business units, the people that really understand that user interface that goes back in is like, well, how can we build this story around this AI model, AI solution? But they all have to integrate with the data. Some of it is hard data. Some of it is, yes, that's a squirrel that ran out in front of me. Some of it is empirical data. Some is like personal data. It's like, well, I don't want them to slam on the brace because that's uncomfortable for the person. Right? How we interact with the AI is absolutely critical. One of the funny things about chatbots is they're very they're very functional now and they're very interactive. We still cannot program a computer to catch sarcasm yet. And I find that absolutely hilarious. So there are still some gaps in there of getting a computer to understand, oh, they're just joking. 
coming again from somebody who has a teenage daughter, um, right. two teenage daughters, to actually getting a functional chatbot that can figure out that when we're joking about, oh, gee, thanks for your help, versus, gee, thanks for your help. It's gee, that sounds different. like a, a scene out of um, The Big Bang, where Sheldon <laughs> has the inability to really deduce sarcasm, which right. really is, which begs the question, who should be in this boat as you build out AI? And, and you, you threw out some very interesting personas of the data scientist, the infrastructure, and the business unit. Actually, those should be three in a box. Mm -hmm. Those three areas of connected, let's say, best practices and points of view, the data infrastructure or the data uh, infrastructure uh, technologies, the power of two, making sure that it can provide at speed at the right time at the right person, et cetera. The scientists to really break things down and the business unit to interpret it into something that is relevant to drive, let's say, the goals of the business, which is to delight the customer. And what I thought was rather fascinating, uh, Jared, you mentioned something about you know NLP and chatbots, uh, you know, reading text, for example. AI at some point is going to understand tone, intent, and yes, eventually sarcasm. At some point, it'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> It also occurs to me that of these three personas, if the business unit, if the, the end user, if that's the person that that has that that final purpose in mind, uh, you know, I know, Ed, you had talked about uh, with data being it, whether it's um, it's like a canvas. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if they are the ones that are create well, who's the artist? Who is the I guess, which is the canvas and and and. Yeah. Where is the, the yeah. beginning of all of that? You know, it, it's fascinating. It's, it, you know, I, I think it was uh, one of the impressionists said he dreams his painting and then he brings the painting to life. Each artist has a different style and interpretation, you know, from Claude Monet and Impressionism with usage, usage of light, his amazing interpretation of that. Jason Pollock, you know, uh, abstract, uh, you know, sort of expressionistic action art. Uh, and then you have Pablo Picasso, which was very surrealistic. So every interpretation is very unique. And those personas of the end users are really kind of driving some of these sort of AI goals and uh, objectives. And it's you don't know until you put it out there because the end user will find a different way of interpreting that piece of art or that data to do what they want to do. And it's a series of objectives now of the power of two to capture that, synthesize that, and then deliver something iterative to take that customer down the path of that journey. So Jared, drive the home, uh, drive home the point for us when, uh, when we look at the power of two with Lenovo and Nvidia, what's possible then for, for our listeners? Oh, that's a that's a big question. What is possible <laughs> with the power of AI, right? If we look at the implications of AI inside of a business, right? They have been doing pretty much if then statements, very basic programming language, right? If then, if this happens, then that. Very, very simple computations at that point. When we look at the power of AI, you can put a hundred different ifs and then have a hundred different thens and let the AI really figure out what the right then is, right? Which is one's the right one that we're looking at. Getting that defined, you know, like we said, there's three people in the box, there's three units in the box, there's three decision makers in the box. Understanding what that box looks like on the outside, 
understanding the shipping labels on that box, helping understand where that box is going. How are you going to jar the box? Is your medium charcoal in canvas? Or are you, you know, like uh, I think it was Michelangelo who said I could be wrong here. I just carve somebody and I just knock away the bits that weren't that weren't the object that it was in. The object's already right. hidden inside of there. I just chipped exactly. away the bits that weren't. Oversimplify it, absolutely, because I can't draw stick figures. <laughs> but that is where the power of two is. We help you with that block of concrete and figure out that person. You know that person that's going to be in there, right? The business units know what's there. The data scientists are going to know. I've talked to all three of the people inside of those persona worlds, and they each have the same objective. As the power of two comes together, Lenovo and NVIDIA help customers bridge that. We both talk the logical flow of data. We follow the data from data to decision on the logical side. We follow it from the from the technology side, from the from the physical side, from the edge to the data center, from edge to core. You're going to hear that term a lot. But from the business side, we figure out the value prop, right? We figure out what it is. I talk to customers like, oh, well, we only save 2% a year. It's not worth doing it. 2% of their whole overall bottom line could be a couple of billion dollars of benefit, right? We, NVIDIA and Lenovo, have the expertise to help them figure out, to help them bring that triumvirate of success together to make sure that they are going to be able to do that, uh, to reach the solutions that their companies are going to need to go forward. And just like virtualization and cloud was you know, 10 and 20 years ago, every company is being asked, what is your AI solution? The ones without an AI vision, they're the ones that are going to fail. And I've seen so many companies get in their own way trying to figure out what it is, right? And then by the time they adopt it, they're already behind on the curve. So Lenovo and NVIDIA together, we can get them on the curve, get them in front of their business. And really, as our CEO Jensen Wong said, if data is your currency, how are you going to invest it? Right. And I, and I love that. The, the data aspect, 75%, if you're going to remember one number out of this, 75% of data is going to be generated at the edge, what do you do with it? What's the context? What's the syntax? What's the culture of the person that is experiencing that data or generating that data? You know, Jared, you, you, you talked about, you know, uh, AI coming up with the right answer. There's always the challenge of, of AI in the hands of people who may not have the relevance or the insights to different nuances which begs the question of bias. What's your take on that, Jared? Hmm. So when we look at bias, there are very interesting ways that people do that. Confirmation bias, I think, is one of the worst. When I was reading a study this morning about AI studying genomics, we have a talk, sorry, we have our session coming up soon called GTC, our Global GPU Technology Conference. And in there, we have brain dates. Brain dates are where you can sit there and talk to somebody. I'm doing one on the AI historical contexts in history um, and how we're using AI to uncover new historical bits of information. So that probably won't make the podcast. But anyway, I just want to pitch myself there. One of the ones I was reading this morning was around AI researchers using genomics data to uncover new insights back into history. One of the problems we have in confirmation bias is our limited data sets. Looking at the world from the Western point of view, right, you know, less living in America, we collect DNA data. America's a pretty good melting pot, but we are missing 
some of that DNA data that's out there. So what they had done is they'd gone through and they looked at a lot of our ancient ancestors that came out of Africa, our ancient ancestors that came out of uh, Asia, and they went back through and looked at historical anthropological signs, the skeletons and stuff like that they discovered. And they discovered a brand new human dead end of evolution that they said humans had broken off from our typical Neanderthal chain and had went off on this other path and they just didn't evolve. And what it does is that it explains that contextual data and confirmation bias that if we just run these sets on just American data, we would not have captured it because they pulled in European data and they pulled in African data, which unfortunately there's not a lot out there for genomics data yet, and made a brand new discovery. The other side of this is a very interesting one when you start looking at broad historical contexts. Again, I love history, right? And there's sometimes you can reach a right conclusion by looking at the data, but it's actually an incomplete conclusion. And one of my favorite ones is uh, you don't invade Russia in winter, right? Because Napoleon failed, the, the German army in World War II failed, right? It makes sense. Russia's a really nasty place in winter, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But they miss a point. And that point is, is that Genghis Khan or Prester John, or whichever one, whichever way you want to call him, invaded from the east. And you can conquer Russia from the east because of the way the geography is. They missed the data point that it's not necessarily invading Russia in the winter. It's that you shouldn't invade Russia from Europe because it funnels you in and Russia can trade land for time. But doing it from the east, and that's an interesting point of contextual data that they have gone back through and analyzed and said, yeah, it is purely possible. I'm not sure that's a good example. But. No, I, I like that. I, I yeah. think there are a lot of instances in military uh, engagements that teaches us uh, many different things. To do the unexpected, to do the left hook in many cases, there's a there's an analogy that is used, uh, which is to catch your opponent off guard with the left hook in boxing and well as in the military. Coming from a advantage point of speed, uh, intent, to drive chaos and disarray. There's some fascinating things uh, where the left hook really comes out of nowhere. And it, it, there are some great examples, and I'll defer to Jared from his uh, deg degree and, and thesis around military history. I think it's fascinating to use AI to kind of run some different models on what would have happened if something else uh, were sort of uh, integrated in as a different data set. Yeah, and uh, going going back to the left hook, and there's always the Mike Tyson quote of uh, "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face." Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's exactly the same thing that we see with AI a lot. Is that oh, we're going down this great path, then all of a sudden they get punched in the face with a new data set, and they start over from scratch. Yeah. So, Whoops. and that's why self driving cars have taken so long is because they realized originally when they started it's going to be a million hours, then it was ten million hours. Tesla's now saying a billion hours of self-driving car data to get there. But yeah, when we look at historical contexts, right, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, fortunately, are fairly easy image recognitions. They're all relatively the same shape, but they evolved over, you know, Egypt's uh, uh, empire or Egypt civilization range for almost, you know, 3,000 years, using AI to figure out how the context of those hieroglyphs have changed over the years based off back to what they know from the original uh, translation thereof. They're using AIs, and this is one of my favorite ones. They're able to fly drones and fly planes over old battlefields. And we're talking old battlefields, like Roman battlefields. Hmm. Now, 
One of the greatest things that humans ever figured out how to do during warfare is to dig a hole and hide yourself in it. So what they found out is that as these Romans dug these trenches, it loosened up the soil. Well, after the Romans were done with it, all that soil went back in and the farmer went back to plowing. That soil is better aerated. So therefore, the crops grow just slightly better. But because of plowshares. Yeah, so it's source to plowshares, exactly. So what they're able to do now using AI and imaging and these, these, these uh, super high accuracy models is figure out just a minuscule difference of where grain is growing slightly better. As they pull that out, they're able to see the zigzags of the Roman trenches. They're finding new Mayan temples uh, deep in the jungle where the jungle doesn't match up where it's supposed to be, right? The signals and the noise, right? Or, or you know, when you find a needle in a stack, a needle in a haystack, typically you're trying to find a needle in a stack of needles. I mean, that is really how hard a lot of this uh, data is to go off and try and find. And I have a whole bunch of other, you know, weird historical ones uh, that we can throw out. There was a, uh, it's a, it's epiphical. It's not true. But back in the 60s, there was a one of the first giant supercomputers in the world was built in the basement of the Pentagon. Uh, Robert McNamara was a huge data guy. He wanted to run the wars based off of data. And he got his experience during World War II and Bomber Command. And he figured out that, well, we're going to run the Vietnam War based off of status, based off yep. of statistics. Mm-hmm. Bullets, bombs, casualties, horrible, horrible things like that. And so the joke went is that uh, Robert McNamara took all this data, fed it in the computer uh, in 1967 and asked when we're going to win the war. And it said, well, you won it in 1965. Hmm. Because the one thing it could not context was human sentiment. And that is one of the key things of capturing human data. Funny story here as well. Uh, I have a friend, great guy, a Roman historian as well. He loves his history. He does not like cheese. He's not lactose intolerant. He's just doesn't like cheese, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm fine. I don't like asparagus. I'm good with that. Right. But everybody likes cheese. That's my that's my opinion. But if somebody, and here's the thing, is when you break that down, you're like, you don't like cheese, you're weird. Well, I don't like all cheeses. I don't like stinky feet blue cheese, right? You know, some people do, some people don't. So when you break down cheese, there's a lot of data points inside of cheese that can make it interesting. But now, is there an association of his dislike of cheese to something else that he does like. Mm-hmm. And that to me would be an interesting thing to figure out is because you don't like cheese, let's go figure out, you know, because he also likes Dr. Pepper. Okay, that's a good one. He also likes tequila, but he doesn't like tequila and Dr. Pepper. I don't think that's a real drink. He likes <laughs> no. steak, right? So there's all sorts of things there of human context that there's no scientific reason. Well, at least that we know he doesn't like cheese. But there's so many other data points in there that really make you go figure out that what is the association between these and how can we better target them, right? And since then, I've started asking people and use that as a reference. There are actually a decent amount of people out there that just don't like cheese. That's I just like that. Cheese. And I, I thought it was I thought it was just one of these really weird things. You're the only person I ever met. And so then I started using it as an example, and I've met more people who just don't like cheese. And that to me is a fascinating data point. Because it's like, okay, since you don't like cheese, are there other things you don't like? Are there other things you do like? How can we associate that as one of those unique data points? Because it's not all that uncommon. Whereas me not liking asparagus, I don't see why anybody would like asparagus. I assume nobody likes asparagus. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's a point, right? Is our likes and our dislikes, that is really hard for 
technology to figure out how those data points play back in together. You know, McNamara asking the computer well, when we're going to win, he could not capture the fact that the North Vietnamese would never give up. Right. And that's why when we look at modeling of human data and the, and, and the military aspects in history, that is something, especially ancient history, we have absolutely no context on these stories. There's so many dead ends of history that we just give up on and we don't know yet because we don't have any primary sources sitting out there right now. I find it fascinating you brought up the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, right? And uh, what's fascinating about that is that they were fighting a war from an infinite point of view, not a finite point of view, right? McNamara had an endpoint. The NVA, they fought their battles. They've been fighting it for generations. Mm -hmm. So there's some, it's a whole different mindset. And what is the strategy and the syntax? And then, you know, you know McNamara was one of the original whiz kids uh, from Ford during World War II. So they use all the numbers to kind of recalibrate and retool um, all of the capabilities to deliver in the supply chain using data to drive faster production at higher quality and at higher speeds. It's, it's just an amazing set of, let's say, dynamics that uh, McNamara and his uh, counterparts actually delivered. They, they took data, right? And they really mastered it, but they didn't have the nuances right, the syntax, the emotional, the turning point of the uh, Vietnam War was Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite. Thank you. So Walter basically said the world, uh, the wars changed. Yeah. And that changed the sentiment. And that was enough to flip the bit. And it, exactly. And it's really interesting because when you look at the context of war, human conflict in general, right? There's many things that go on, but if you just focus on the beans and the bullets, getting the beans and the bullets to the frontline soldiers, the other thing that they missed was the turning of the civil rights movement inside of America at the same time, the distrust of the war through Walter, not Walter Cronkite was responsible for it, but he really right. opened people's eyes. He told the truth about yeah. the war. They said like, guys, this basically isn't winnable. The, the myth of the good war is gone. And the, and the fact that the Americans were starting to really protest against it, that was not in any of their calculations because they couldn't get it. But it goes back to what problem are you trying to solve? You know, and, and the, the, the good old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, answer to life, universe, and everything is 42 because that's six times nine, which of course it isn't unless you use base 13 math. So it's very interesting there is like when you try to find that problem you're solving, make yeah. sure you're solving the right problem. Make sure you actually truly do understand your problem. A lot of these early AI adoptions, yeah, they're really straightforward. Um, you know, uh, industrial inspection, you're trying to make sure your product comes down the product line that doesn't have a dent in it, right? Those sort of things. We understand yeah. those are problems we try to solve. When we get more into the human sentiment, the recommendation engines, what captures your interest, that that is really where those data scientists really come into play. Which is why they and run I, off of Mountain Dew and coffee. So. <laughs> and I love that Mountain Dew and coffee. It's sort of like the the spectrum that you need to kind of you know the canvas. What does the canvas really sort of contain? You know, if you look back in the '60s, right, it was Camelot, and the uh, the counter was civil rights. Mm -hmm. How do you square that, right? How do you go from the Beatles to Motown? All these different types of things. When you pull them together, it's still music. It's still society, but. When you have Camelot as one point of view and civil rights as the other, wow. Yeah, so the you know the 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 challenge and the opportunity of AI coming to help us 
sort of navigate through this, understand it, right? And revel in, you know, the discoveries that come from it, I think they're gonna be amazing as we go forward. It's it's interesting because data is neither right nor wrong. It's still just data, right? At the end of the day, it's still zeros and ones. You can skew data all you want. That goes back to the confirmation bias, mm -hmm. right? If you only present a certain kind of data, of course, you're only gonna get a certain kind of answer. Right. And that is where the data scientists fortunately can step in and say, look, we need more data sets. We need additional data sets. We need to look at it this through a different lens of trying to solve the same problem. And that's really where you know a lot of these rules and structures around AI needs to come into play to make sure we don't end up with, you know, un with with biased AIs or, you know, the, back to the beginning of the of the podcast you said, Ed, is, you know, the media is the media that imita art imitates life. You know, they do love a bad guy, right? AI becomes a great bad guy, but we don't really understand yet you know, the goodness that AI really can bring in because AI is powerful. We use AI in our daily lives now, um, which is amazing to think about, it, but where it's going to be in five to 10 years, th that's going to really change our, our the way we look at things. Well, a fascinating conversation today, and uh, I'm glad we're able to to get a little bit off uh, off the, the script and, and really kind of, you know, brainstorm. Uh, this is something that uh, two AI bots would not be able to do on a podcast. That's funny. If you want to go watch the YouTube videos of two AI bots talking to one another, mm. yeah, they go off. They go off script a lot more than Ed and I can. <laughs> At least we're contextual. Right. Right. Uh. Well, uh, as we start to wrap up this episode, uh, we always ask our guests, "Where do you see technology going in the next year?" So, uh, Ed, I'm going to start with you. I, I think it's going to be um, it's going to go in what I would call the ERs: faster, deeper wider and funner. I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting things in technologies that we're starting just to discover now. Because of the power of two, we're able to do it, you know, in a in a manner where we can stand up systems faster. We can go deeper with analytics and we can go wider with all sorts of uh, context. So as we do that, it's going to get funner. I think that's where the market is going to be headed. Embrace AI because that's where the game's going to be played. Isn't Faster, Deeper, Wider, Funner a Daft Punk song? Yes. I think so. Okay. Faster, Here's Stronger, Better. Yeah. <laughs> Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Yes. yes there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where is technology going in the next year versus the next five years is, is pretty interesting. As we come out of our COVID bubble, what are we looking for out of technology? I think people are going to be looking at technology on how to re-engage. I hope they're looking at to break their own tribalism. And I think mm. we're going to see a lot more, oh, how do I put this, oversight into how that data is changed. There's a lot of bad data being shared. And I think that we have to protect ourselves from it. Um, I don't think most... I, I don't think most engagements are true to the fact that they present the right data. There's way, way, way too much biased data that's going out there. And I hope to see more technology, more oversight for that. In the next five years, you know, I brought up self-driving cars. I don't think we'll have fully autonomous personal vehicles. We'll definitely have point-to-point -point vehicles, uh, you know, distribution system. There's a huge trucker problem in, uh, I'm sorry, lorry driver problem in the UK right now for delivering mm -hmm. fuel. Mm -hmm. Well... You typically fuel is delivered from the pumping station, sorry, from the distribution center out to the pumping station. They drive that same route once a week. You can program a truck to do that so easily. And it gets out to the trucking station and does that. We're going to see more AI in our customer interactions with our 
facilities, you know, either our power company, our phone company, our bank, whatever, they're still going to be, we're going to really see that take over and it's only going to become better. The last one I really see is when we look at IVA, which stands for Intelligent Video Analytics. It's just a data stream. When you look at a camera now, it really is just a data stream. We're gonna see that where it's gonna really start optimizing our life. We're having really big supply problems right now. And a lot of that is, is tracking where the product is, tracking where it needs to go, how we get it off of the ships most efficiently, right? That is exactly what AI is optimized to do. Using those cameras to track the products, to understand where they're going, is a relatively simple process for AI once you get the models trained. And being able to implement that out into production, it will solve a lot of our supply chain problems. There's some that it's not going to solve. I'm not saying it's going to solve every problem, uh, but there are definitely some out there that, that it's going to going to help with. Yeah, I, I think the, the big search for uh, toilet paper over the next six months is going to be quite the ordeal. And you know, it's supply chain uh, notwithstanding, it's it's taking the mindset and best practices of just in time, which is, which has been time immemorial for supply chain for decades. It's now just in case. What does just in case really look like? Right? How do you anticipate volume, velocity, and variety of different types of things in the shelf, in the store, in the home, in the distribution centers? These are all really AI opportunities to really dig, or dig a lot deeper in regards to what are the art of, uh, let's say, the possible in regards to getting the right product to the right person at the right time. At the same time, the big challenge, I think, Jared, is P squared, right? Privacy and personalization. I want it personalized, but I want my privacy as well. Yeah. Can that be accomplished with AI? That's a very important question. I always take the stance of I am in control of my own data. I only share my data with personal people with only certain people. I know where my data is at. I only sign up for certain things. Mm. We represent a higher level knowledge of person and technology. I would not expect somebody who does not live inside a technology world to understand all the complex privacy concerns that are out there. They don't understand how their data can flow back in the organizations mm. and between organizations and be shared, et cetera, et cetera. But then again, I talked to some millennial friends. I'm not picking on millennials. I'm just saying they're a generation younger than I am. They don't have concerns about privacy. They said, I'm absolutely fine putting videos of myself on TikTok doing silly things for free goods and services. <laughs> so it is an interesting expectation out there. But companies such as NVIDIA and Lenovo, we will always follow the privacy laws set forward by the governments to make sure that we handle that data correctly. And that is where I see the important happening as you see companies such as Lenovo and NVIDIA following the right privacy rules to make sure, let the people do the people stuff and they can protect themselves and we try to educate them as best as possible. We follow the right rules and we build the right AI models and we work with the right customers to make sure we solve the right problems. No, I like that. I think three in the box, the data scientists, the, the data infrastructure team and the BU really have to sit long and hard amongst themselves to understand what is not just the art, you know, the the art of the possible, but the art of privacy, governance, you know, uh, and resilience and uh, risk as we look at the uh, compliance requirements from countries to states, governments, uh, and to even ourselves. So it's, it, I think it's going to be a fascinating journey. You know, the fastest growing job, one of the fastest growing jobs is the data scientist, right? I mean, they make six figures coming out of college now, seven figures if you live in California. Sign me up. 
Yeah. <laughs> one of the, I'm not that smart. Uh, one of the more interesting jobs we see out there is an AI ethicist or data ethicist, right? Ooh. Who is presenting the data ethics and they're going back to those three in a box, right? Infrastructure, uh, data scientist, business unit, but more and more business businesses are starting to hire data ethicists, right? How do we handle this? It's a cross between data science it's a cross between ethics. It's a cross between privacy and legal. It's a very interesting position out there that more and more companies are starting to realize that they need this and they need to take it, uh, take ownership of these of these problems. And I hope to see that drastically expand as we talk about the business units, right? These business units trying to get the right results. How do we get the? Because if you take all things considered, if you throw an AI at a historical problem, we need this product built. Why don't we go employ a bunch of 12-year-olds to go build it? Why not? They're free labor, right? But that is morally wrong, right? And that is really where I start seeing a lot more data ethicists come into play as part of that important business motion as they monetize their data. Wow. That sounds like another episode to me, Jared. <laughs> Sign me up. If we can, yeah. Only if we can have it with Dr. Pepper and tequila. There we there go. You go. There you go. Not we'll, get, we'll sign up George Clooney uh, to kind of come up with that company. Love yeah, there it. we go. Yeah. All right, then. Well, I surely appreciate all of your time and insights. Jared and Ed, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Shelby. It was a blast. As always, Shelby, I appreciate the time you gave me today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in and subscribing to B2B Tech Talk with Ingram Micro. If you like this episode or have a question, please join the discussion on Twitter with the hashtag B2B Tech Talk. Until next time, I'm Shelby Skirhawk. You've been listening to B2B Tech Talk with Ingram Micro. This episode was sponsored by Ingram Micro's Imagine Next. B2B Tech Talk is a joint production with Sweetfish Media and Ingram Micro. To not miss an episode, subscribe today to your favorite podcast platform.